Thank you, Nick. Well, when I first looked up the topic I was given to preach on, I thought, ah, oh, another, t- another tough one. <laughs> Don't make it easy or anything, please. Um, anyway, <clears throat> when I first read through that passage, I sort of struck, really, in a way that perhaps we don't see the full strength of it. The Transfiguration is recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in three of the Gospels. And I think you might find it interesting, uh, for later homework, I always give you a bit of homework to do, to read all the three accounts in parallel. Uh, Okay, three Bibles open. I'm sure we can all manage that in a house, can't we? Not hard. Uh, Or at least finger in each and flick between them. But having read Matthew's account, it occurred to me (laughs) that perhaps in some ways, yes, as a society, we've come quite a long way since biblical times. Today, we, we have an amazing array of machines and tools and complex technologies, entertainments, radio, TV, film. I wonder, though, if it spoils us a little bit these trappings of modern life, especially when we see the amazing tricks and special effects in films. And I wondered if we might have become a little bit desensitized and miss the impact of this experience that the disciples had. Just think about it. The world, known at the time, Roman Empire and Israel then, was a society whose greatest technological achievement was the wheel and sharp swords, where almost everyone had to walk everywhere. Commerce relied on notched counting sticks made of wood, and nighttime was lit very dimly by candles and lamps burning oil in cloth. Not so advanced as we are. But here we find Jesus taking three of his disciples for a walk up a mountain for prayer, which he'd done many times before. But they see him change to shining more brightly than they had ever known. A light so bright, it seems brighter than the sun. Then Moses and Elijah, long, long dead, appear walking around and chatting with him. There they are, standing at the very boundary of heaven, when Almighty God speaks from a bright cloud, saying that Jesus is his pleasing, beloved Son, and they should listen to him. Now, surely this was deeply shocking, stunning. It's outside any previous experience they would have had from day-to-day life. They'd seen miracles, yes, but this was extreme. It's no wonder Peter could only babble something about shelters and before all three dropped terrified to the ground, as is normal for sinful people to do in the presence of the living God. And then just as they wonder what else might happen, Jesus touches them on the shoulder and suddenly everything is normal again. Well, I imagine they'll never forget that day in a hurry. And yet, despite all this, Jesus warns them not to speak to anyone about it. 
I'd say no wonder they had questions on the walk back down the hill or mountain. Top of the list for me, I'd expect, is what happened? What just what happened? But there they are instead, talking about prophetical events and the order of who is Elijah, and that uh, makes me think that they're somewhat theology ninjas of some sort. So what did just happen? And remember the stunning impact. What was the purpose? The whole idea of God speaking in a bright cloud has happened several times before in their history. It happened on Mount Sinai several times then when Moses received the Ten Commandments and the law. You can read all about that in Exodus chapter 19 and through to 24 where a lot of the law there is, is described. Now, although not many people had seen that, they'd not seen Moses doing that, they just know he, he was away with some of the elders. And again, I think our perspective on time is a little bit different than it would have been in those days. We, we are more of a rush, perhaps, than uh, was true then. Because Moses was away for over a month with receiving the Ten Commandments. You read, we, we skim through the, the, the scripture and think perhaps, you know, it was an afternoon's work. But no, it was a whole month. So long that actually they seem to have forgotten everything Moses had done. Memory, yeah, fickle thing. They reverted to idol worship before that month was uh, through, really. Uh, again, Exodus 24 and, and uh, on into uh, chapter 32. Uh, you can find that described and the, the uh, difficulties that were encountered. But so memory is somewhat a fickle thing. So you know, there wasn't enough for people to really remember what had taken place. What about Elijah? I mean, he was part of this transfiguration event. Uh, instead of dying, he was collected up to heaven in a fiery chariot with fiery horses leading it. Um, his student, Elisha, was there to see it. Yes, then it was more of a whirlwind at the time than a bright cloud, but certainly not a usual event. What about the baptism of Jesus? Heaven was opened, and the Spirit came down as a dove, and God spoke from a cloud then, a bright cloud. John the Baptist saw this, perhaps the people around did too. What impact did that make? So it seems there's a characteristic of bright light, fire, and cloud which is associated with the appearance uh, of the Lord God Almighty in key moments of Israel's history. So what about this one then? Same things are there. The great bright cloud, the voice of God speaking. Why at this particular point in Jesus' ministry what was this one all about? Well, reading through some of the Bible commentators, they're mostly agreed there actually isn't very much to work with here. The description in the three Gospels is very, very close uh, in, in detail. Um, and questions such as, well, was it still daytime? Um, had the disciples woken from sleep? Was it a vision or was it physical in front of them? How did they recognize it was Moses and Elijah? They were dead by centuries then. 
How long were they there? Was it all day or night, a couple of weeks? We don't know. In fact, some question even if it was Mount Tabor, since there was a city fort on that mountain at the time, so not a lot of privacy to be had. Other mountains were available, so you know, we're, we're <clears throat> the description is sparse and leaves us only to speculate, so we won't, we'll move on. There must be another purpose behind this. So to understand it, and I think there are three main parts, I think we need to look at the participants. That helps me, uh, so let's do that. The first ones, actually, funnily enough, are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and John the Baptist. Now, bear with me. If we go back a couple of chapters, behind the scenes, the Pharisees, teachers of the law, we see them questioning Jesus' authority. Certainly as teacher, and from him, if he is the Christ, they say, demanding signs and wonders to convince them. Not long before this particular uh, event, Jesus had miraculously fed the 4,000. Peter had declared Jesus as Messiah, but then showed poor understanding when Jesus described how that was going to work out. Even John the Baptist, up to then, had been expressing uncertainty about Jesus. You can read that in Luke chapter 7 and verses 18 onwards. And he was Jesus' cousin. Perhaps this event is the time to remove some of the doubts and uncertainty amongst Jesus' followers. So here we are in the Transfiguration, and as you heard in the video, the agreement is mostly that uh, Moses and Elijah are there to represent the law and the prophets. Moses who received the law, uh, Elijah who foretold John the Baptist and restored proper worship amongst the society of the time of his time anyway. They're here really to represent and to be of service to Jesus. They sum up all of Israel's history before that point. And they're there to serve Jesus who is the embodiment and fulfillment of that law and prophets and would be so uh, through all the events to his resurrection. So, well, Jesus is there, <laughs> central character. <clears throat> the discussion that took place, uh, only Luke seems to uh, write down what the detail of that discussion was about, and it was concerning Jesus' forthcoming death. From this point on, Jesus was going to set his face to going to Jerusalem and to fulfill the whole purpose for which he uh, existed. So, this gives us the first purpose for the transfiguration event. It shows us that Jesus chose of his own free will to die as Messiah. He's not some hapless victim of circumstances. His divine nature and heavenly glory on display here shows he willingly subjected himself to death on our behalf. It's not due to any intrinsic weakness on his part. He didn't have to do it. He chose to do it. And so we come to God the Father. 
when God the Father speaks to confirm the divine nature of Jesus and says we should listen to him, it should make us sit up and take notice, don't we think? Perhaps we dare not forget this. This is the second purpose to my mind. Jesus is declared divine and is authenticated as a teacher of God's will with all the authority of Almighty God. Now this would have left a deep impression on the disciples and removing any lingering doubts for them about the nature of Jesus as Messiah. Does it do it for you? Then there are the other disciples. Oh yeah, sure, only three were present at the transfiguration. Peter, James and John, selected by Jesus. Those three represent the other disciples. Why just that? Well, we read in the law, Deuteronomy 17, verse 6, 19, 15, we read that all matters are confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That testimony and that witnessing was in those laws sufficient to condemn someone to death. So this gives us the third purpose. After the resurrection, these three were to become foremost leaders of the church. And so we're in the best position to confirm what took place, to confirm the primacy of Jesus, sufficient for legal, undeniable acceptance. Now, the other disciples who were not there, but would eventually have been told about this transfiguration, if they had any doubts or questions, they could go directly to Peter or James or John and ask and talk it through. They had the witnesses to ask directly, as we read in our first passage of scripture today in 2 Peter 1, we were eyewitnesses of his glory. A short sentence but sums up so much. This gives the gospel writers of Matthew, Mark, Luke, the, the trusted source and encouragement in their faith as they recorded the event. So what about us? We were there. Well, sort of. It leaves us. We're there indirectly as, as reading this passage. So yes, we sort of attended it as an event. So just like the disciples and all the Christians over the centuries since, it's recorded for our encouragement and the confirmation of Jesus' divine nature as teacher and Messiah. Now we can't question Peter directly, but we have his testimony. It's written down for us. And as Jesus said to Thomas in John chapter 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So where does that leave us? Have we been listening to God as God the Father told us? He said, listen to him. What does that mean? Well, James gives us a summary of what listening means in his letter later on in the Bible. Listening means action. James 1 verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And 
in James 2, verse 18, I will show you my faith by my deeds. Well, he should know. After all, he was there. So don't neglect this practice of listening and doing, because Almighty God has commanded it. If you haven't yet taken Jesus' teaching seriously or sought him out for forgiveness, I urge you to do so without delay. Read his teachings. Read what's written in the scripture. Read what Jesus said. Then read how the apostles put that into practice and practices every day. So let's finish up with the one loose end that sort of itches at the back of the brain. Can you think of it? If this event is such a powerful confirmation of Jesus and his role, why did he tell them not to speak of it until after the resurrection? They themselves didn't really understand what that meant as the resurrection. Well, I think, and this is only what I think about it, if you have read through most of the Gospels um, in respect of how the teachers of the law and the Pharisees behaved towards Jesus, think of the animosity that was building. Think of the anger, how touchy the teachers of the law had become towards anyone who spoke and supported Jesus. Remember, in Acts 7, we read that Stephen was stoned for saying he could see into heaven. That upset them so much. So perhaps Jesus was unwilling to risk the future leaders of the church at that point until the Holy Spirit had come to strengthen them. Makes sense to me anyway. What about you? Let's stand and sing our next hymn.